Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you here today. Uh, if we've never had the chance to meet before, my name is Doug, and I'm glad you joined us for worship this morning, whether you're here in person or you're watching online. Uh, you chose a great day to be here because today we start a new sermon series. It's a Christmas series called Love Has Come. And I always love preaching at Christmas time because I just love this season. I especially love Christmas, but to be honest, I love all of the holidays. And this week was a perfect example. Just in the past few days, I got to eat Halloween candy, Thanksgiving leftovers, and the first round of Christmas treats. So yeah, this is a magical time of year. But you know, we're, we're not here to talk about food. You know that. We're here to talk about an event that took place more than 2,000 years ago, over 6,000 miles away. It's the birth of Jesus. And at Christmas time, we celebrate the fact that love has come in the form of an infant king who changes everything. We celebrate the fact that God became human and he entered this world on a rescue mission. Now, for many of us, the original Christmas story, it's very, very familiar. We know how it goes. We can name all the major characters in the nativity scene. And we know all the words to Silent Night, at least the first verse. But the truth is, even though this story, it might be very familiar, the truth is there is nothing ordinary or commonplace about the birth of Jesus. It's the incarnation. It's when the Son of God became human. Somebody said this event is kind of like a painter who becomes the paint on his own canvas. It's kind of like Bob Ross becoming a happy little tree. It's a crazy thought, isn't it? And the amazing thing about this event is that God did this for us. And he did it out of love. 1 John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So Christmas was the beginning of God's rescue mission to save us. And that mission continued through the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. So it all begins at the manger, right? Well, in one way, yes, but in a bigger way, no. See, the reality is we won't understand the Christmas story until we understand the reason for Christmas, the need for Christmas. You can't understand the manger until you understand the mess that the manger was meant to solve. So today, we're not going to start with the Christmas passages in Matthew and Luke. We're going to start with the big picture. We're going to zoom out about as far as we can go. We're going to try to see things from God's point of view. And of course, as humans, we, we can't do that ourselves. But because of the Bible, we really can. So I'm going to tell you one great big story this morning. It's a story that I've told here before. And I'm going to break it down into five chapters. And here's how it all begins. Chapter 1, in the beginning, God. Now, that is a simple statement, but it's also very profound. Those four words contain some very deep concepts. 
And some of you might recognize that this is a quote from the very first sentence in the Bible, Genesis 1.1. And I'm going to read this verse, but I don't want to do it alone, so I'm asking you to, to read with me, everybody together out loud. Ready? Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Nice job. Now, when I was a kid growing up at church, we used to memorize Bible verses, and we'd earn points, and, and we could get prizes. And I was all about those prizes, even if it happened to be some cheap plastic toy that would only last about 15 minutes. But Genesis 1-1, this was one of the first verses that we learned. And that makes a lot of sense because this verse is foundational. If we really take in the, the meaning of Genesis 1-1 and all the implications of this, the rest of the Bible is going to make a lot of sense. So let's think about this. The word beginning there, what's that about? What is that referring to? Does that refer to the beginning of human history? Actually, no, this, this goes back farther than that. We're traveling back before the beginning of our universe. And before this universe came into being, what do we find? In the beginning, God. We find God. He was already there. He existed before time and space. Now, we have no way to picture someone who exists outside of time and space. You can try to do that. You just won't succeed. But that's who God is. Listen to Psalm 90, verse 2. It says, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God interesting, isn't it? You are God. Present tense. God is always in the present tense because he transcends our understanding of past, present, and future. He's not trapped in a moment of history the way we are. He's like an author who writes a book. The author can open the book and flip to any page and see an individual character who is stuck on that page, but the author is not stuck. He or she can flip to the beginning or to the end. He or she can close the book, set it down, walk away, and then live a life that is entirely outside of the book. And that's who God is. There are so many things about God that we just can't comprehend. But instead of speculating about what we don't know this morning, let's think about what we do know about God. From the book, the book of Genesis, we know that God is the original cause of our universe. Now, of course, some people disagree with that statement. Uh, they believe that everything just appeared by chance. And I will admit, it does require faith to believe that God created this universe. But I would also say it's going to take a lot of faith to believe that everything just appeared by accident. The truth is, our universe is covered with the fingerprints of God. All of creation points to a great designer and a great artist. It points to the fact that God is simply great. A better word would actually be awesome. I want to take a moment to focus on the awe factor of God. Years ago, I heard an illustration from a preacher named Francis Chan, and I shared this here a long time ago, but I wanted to bring it back. So we're going to take a little journey together. It's a space journey. 
But we start here on earth. We're actually going to start on this little farm in Kentucky. But we're about to take off. So we're going to rise now to an altitude of about 35,000 feet. This is six and a half miles in the sky. This is a view of the Andes Mountains down in South America. And when you're that high, you can start to see the curvature of the earth. But let's keep going. Uh, we'll go to about 260 miles into space. When you get to this level, you are considered an astronaut. But now let's go even higher. Uh, we're going to zoom out to about 240,000 miles. That's the distance between here and the moon. So this is what the earth looks like from up there. Well, now we'll, we'll keep going out to about 27 million miles from home. Uh, this is a photo of the earth taken by NASA's Parker Solar Probe back in 2018. We're not done yet. Let's fly out to a view of the entire solar system. Now, our solar system is over 7 billion miles wide, and, and from this distance, you, you can't see the Earth at all. But we'll, we'll fly out even farther. This is a view of the Milky Way galaxy. Now, we're in there somewhere, but it's hard to say where because the Milky Way is over 100,000 light years wide. Now, just one light year is more than five trillion miles. So, 100,000 light years? Yeah, that, that's a long way off. Okay, I'll show you one last image, and this one just blew my mind. This is a recent photograph, not an illustration. It's a photograph taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. And what we're looking at right now is a massive cluster of galaxies. I don't think the Milky Way is in that picture, but if it was, it would be just one more blob among hundreds and hundreds of other galaxies. Now, think about God as creator. How powerful and great and intelligent and creative would he have to be to come up with all of this? It's amazing. But even though this is amazing, there is something even more awe-inspiring. In the book of Genesis, we see who God is, we see what he's capable of, but we also learn something that is almost unbelievable. Our God and our creator wants to be with us. He cares about us. He values and even treasures a relationship with us. I agree with what King David wrote in Psalm 8. David said, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Can it really be in this vast universe that God looks at the little speck that is you and the little speck that is me and he says, I love that little speck. As we read on in Genesis, we see that it's true. Every human being is prized by God. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. And when God first made people, he looked at us and he said, we were good. Actually, very good. That takes us to chapter 2 of our story. In chapter 2, God looked at creation and he said, it's all good. You ever use that phrase? 
It's all good. That phrase applies here. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, we see the things that God made on the different days of creation. Uh, On the first day, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then on the subsequent days, God filled creation with water and sky and land, the sun, the moon, the stars, the fish and the birds, and then all the rest of the animals. And at the end of of each of those first six days, God looked at what he made and he said it was good. But then on day six, he said something different. And this is the day that we get to God's masterpiece. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, a couple of interesting things here. First, God describes himself using the word us. So who is the us? Well, this is a little clue that points to something we call the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So how do we explain this? Is God one person or three persons? Well, the answer is yes. He is three in one. And this is another one of those things that's beyond our comprehension. But there's another thing that we need to see here. God created mankind in what? In his own image. See, there is something about you that is more significant. Something about you that makes you more significant than your dog. Definitely makes you more significant than your cat. And this is what it is. You have been made in the image of God. He put a part of himself in you. And again, this is a little mysterious. But here's what God said after the sixth day of creation. God looked at all that he had made, and it was very good. Not just good, but very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So for God, this is the most precious part of his creation. It's human beings. It's people. It's you and me. I don't know how you view yourself. I don't know if you think of yourself as precious or particularly special, but the truth is, you are. Now, you can't take credit for that because you weren't responsible, but you are fearfully and wonderfully made. I heard a preacher named Louis Giglio talking about this, and it's just phenomenal when you think about how each of us have been created. I want to show you a picture It's not in your baby book. It's a picture of you at three days old. And at this stage, you were a a human embryo that was made up of just eight cells. And these eight cells continued to grow and multiply using the pattern of your DNA. Uh, You can find the entire pattern of your DNA in just a single cell. 
And in your early days, those eight cells began to grow into who you are now. You're currently made of 75 trillion cells, and each one of those cells contains your unique DNA. Now, God in the womb, he's constantly working miracles. So here's another picture. Here you are at 10 weeks in the womb. These were the good old days. All your needs were taken care of. You didn't have to worry about much. At this point, all your major organs had started to form. Tiny tooth buds had appeared. And then, in the coming weeks, even more amazing things were happening. Here's an example. At 21 weeks, a million optic nerve endings left the optic nerve center of your brain. And at the same time, a million nerves left your eye. So you've got group one that left your, your brain, group two left your eye. And all of these nerve endings are trying to meet their exact partner. One million looking for one million. And when they found their exact partner, in that instant, you had sight. When I read that this week, It brought tears to my eyes. Now, a lot of people will tell you the most technologically advanced thing on earth, it's not your smartphone, it's your eye. But there in the womb, you had a problem. A piece of skin covered your eye. And that covering of skin would have kept you from seeing. But miraculously and mysteriously, at about six months, a little cutting device appeared and perfectly cut that piece of skin and you had eyelids. You were able to see. Now, seriously, does that not take you to God as a creator? Doesn't that make you want to praise him? That's what David did. In Psalm 139, he was thinking about how he was created by God, and he said, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb, and I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Now, I don't care who's listening today. I want you to know you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And not just because of your nerves and your cells and your DNA. It's because you're made in the image of God. You've been given not only this miraculous body, you've been given a soul. And here's where our story takes another turn. Because when God gave you a soul, he also gave you freedom. Freedom to choose what is right and freedom to choose what is wrong. And now we have to think about Adam, the first human, because God also gave Adam that freedom, and he also gave Adam some expectations. In Genesis 2, 16, it says, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, this is way before the Ten Commandments. This is back when there was just one commandment. Don't eat that fruit on that tree. And, you know, it would seem like Adam could handle that one rule. There was a lot of great stuff to eat in the Garden of Eden. But about this time, 
there was another wrinkle in the story. In the next verse, the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And we know the name of that helper and companion, right? was Eve, the first woman. And Genesis 2 explains that God caused Adam to fall asleep, and he took one of Adam's ribs and he created the woman, which is kind of a funny way to go about it. Uh, It kind of reminds me of a a story of a boy named Johnny. Johnny went to Sunday school one day, and and he heard this for the first time. Uh, Johnny was fascinated to learn that Eve had been made from one of Adam's ribs. So he went home, and later that week, his mom saw him lying down. It looked like he wasn't feeling well. So she came up to him and said, Johnny, what's wrong? And he said, Mom, I've got a pain in my side. I think I'm having a wife. (laughs) That's a tangent, but uh, we need to get back on track. So in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were together. And at first, things were still very good. Genesis 2.25 says something interesting. Adam and Eve, Adam and his wife, were both naked, and they felt no shame. And that doesn't mean they had no modesty. It just means they had no reason to feel shame because they were living in perfect purity. They had a pure relationship with God and a pure relationship with each other. It was a beautiful existence. In fact, if you go back to the original Hebrew meaning of that name, Eden, it means delight. This is where where we arrive at chapter 3 in our great big story. In chapter 3, it's all broken. The purity, the perfection, the delight, it's all ruined by one terrible choice to disobey God's command, that one rule. Now, Adam and Eve, they have to take responsibility for this, but they were encouraged. They were heavily influenced. In chapter 3, verse 1, we come across the serpent. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now the serpent, of course, is the devil. And it's important for us to remember that the devil is not a fairy tale. He's real. Jesus told us he is real. And we saw this in the last series where Jesus was in the wilderness tempted by the devil. Satan is a real enemy. He wants to destroy you. He wants to fill your life with pain and brokenness. He wants you to be separated from God forever. And the Bible tells us that Satan is a deceiver. He will distort the truth to try to encourage you to disobey God. And he might ask a question like this one that we just read. Come on, Eve. Did God really say that? I'm sure it's not that big a deal. The devil will try to convince you that God's commands will keep you away from something good. He'll try to convince you that you can break God's command and still somehow get away with it. Eve said to the serpent, if we touch that fruit, we will die. But the devil said, you won't die. God just doesn't want you to have the knowledge that he has. He's keeping good things away from you. Then we read this. 
when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And just like that, the deed was done. They disobeyed. Adam and Eve chose to sin against God. And the consequences of that sin went far beyond anything they could have imagined. God confronted them and he said, you two have brought a curse on yourselves and on this world. Instead of living in Eden, in perfection and delight, they would now live in pain, labor, toil. They were expelled from the garden. They were separated from God. And for the first time, they had to face death. Now, before sin, death was unheard of in this world. And this may seem harsh, but we need to know that God is not only loving, He's also just. And His justice requires that sin must be punished. That was true in the case of Adam and Eve, and it's also true for you and me. When they sinned, the consequences were devastating. When we sinned, the consequences were also devastating. Because of our sin, this world is broken. It's been the case from Adam and Eve all the way up to the present day. Just think about the past few days. Where have you seen that brokenness this week? Maybe you saw it up in Michigan where a 15-year-old boy took the lives of four fellow students and wounded several others. Maybe you've seen that brokenness in COVID-19, which continues to have a huge negative impact in this world in many different ways. Almost two years after the first cases showed up in China, next Sunday will mark two years. Maybe you saw the brokenness in your family. It shows up in a lot of different forms. Sickness, stress, anxiety, depression, conflict, division, betrayal, grief. We all live with this brokenness every single day. And sometimes we have nothing to do with the pain that we experience. Sometimes your pain comes from the actions of others. Other times, your pain comes just because we live in this fallen world. But we do have to be honest. The hard truth is that sometimes you and I have been responsible for some of the pain in this world. We have contributed to that brokenness through our own sin. It's a sad thing. This world is still under the curse of sin. There is still widespread separation from God, and there is still death. And at this point, it seems like the story is a tragedy. But hang on, because there is hope in the darkness. Christmas is coming. In chapter 4, we see that it's not over. Back in Genesis, God described the curse that came when sin entered the world. But then he went on, and he spoke directly to the serpent. And I want to read what God said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is a very important verse because this is the first reference we have to Jesus in the Bible. So let's read it. God said to the serpent, 
And I will bring enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So this is a prophecy, and here's what it's saying. Somewhere down the line, one of Eve's descendants, one of her offspring will rise up and crush the serpent's head and destroy him. That offspring is Jesus Christ. God told the serpent, yes, there will be a time when you strike at his heel and you will do some limited damage. That's what happened at the crucifixion where Jesus suffered. He died on the cross and Satan thought that he had won. But in reality, the opposite was true. The death of Jesus, it was not a defeat. It was a victory. Because when Jesus sacrificed his own life on the cross, he paid the price for all of our sins. And when he rose from the dead, he proved that he had ultimate authority over Satan and over death itself. The serpent's head was crushed. But now, throughout the Old Testament, from Genesis up to Malachi, these people, they didn't know what was coming. Many of them knew that God had promised a Messiah but they didn't know what this Messiah would look like. A lot of them expected a great general. Uh, others expected a great king who would rule over an earthly empire. But through all these centuries, God always knew what was coming. Love was on the way. Love would show up in a manger in the form of a baby who was also God. And just before that baby was born... A man named Joseph received one more promise. An angel appeared. And this angel spoke to Joseph about his pre pregnant fiance, a woman named Mary. Now, Joseph was very upset about that pregnancy because he knew that he wasn't the father. But the angel said to Joseph, Don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because this baby inside of her is from the Holy Spirit. And then, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel said this, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now that is a great promise, right? Absolutely. But this great, this great promise, it came at a great cost, because the terrible curse of sin could not be removed without a terrible sacrifice. But from God's perspective, Adam, Eve, you and I, he believed that we were worth dying for. And so he launched this rescue mission. Jesus went to the cross to purchase our pardon, and he made it possible for us to have a restored relationship with God. And it goes back to the first verse that I read today. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So here we've reached the final chapter in our great big story. In chapter 5, love has come. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of God's great love for us, Jesus came to bring hope. Not just for the people who lived 2,000 years ago, but for us here today. There's a theme in this story that's woven through the entire Bible. 
God is in the business of restoring what is broken. I've been around long enough to know that every one of us came in here today with some kind of brokenness. We're, we're carrying some kind of burden. You may be here right now with regret. You may have come in here with grief. You may be struggling to find hope this morning. But I want you to know, whatever it is that you carried in here today, it's not too big for God. He can handle it. God knows how sin has broken this world. He knows how sin has broken your world. The sin of Adam and Eve, that was just the beginning. God saw everything that came later. Look at their sons, Cain and Abel. In a fit of jealousy and anger, Cain murdered his brother, Abel, and more brokenness entered this world. That was just the second generation. And in the coming generations, things got worse instead of better. The human race, it became almost entirely wicked, and God had to do something. So he sent a great flood. And every human being on the face of the earth was destroyed, except for Noah and his family. They escaped the flood by following God's instructions to build an ark. And so humanity had a second chance because God is in the business of restoring what is broken. He was working out that restoration way back in the book of Genesis, and he wants to work out that restoration in you today. It's amazing. The Almighty Creator, the author of life, he wants to recreate something in you and restore your brokenness. If you haven't yet experienced a life-changing relationship with Jesus, if you don't know the forgiveness and salvation and hope that comes from him, well, I hope you'll let him change your story forever. And for those of us who do have that relationship with Christ, I hope we'll let him continue to restore us that's what he wants to do. That's what he can do. I also pray that we'll share this story with others. They need it. We all need it. So let's not waste this season. Let's look to Jesus. Let's allow him to do what only he can do. Let's pray. Father, as I, I think about this great big story, I am humbled. I we don't have a word that comes close to describing you. Awesome, great, it's just the beginning. And the fact that you care about us, that you are willing to send your son to die for us, we just thank you for that. But Lord, we are living in a messed up world. We need you. We need the restoration that only you can bring. And I pray that we will look to you turn over all of our pain, sinfulness, brokenness to you and just see what you will do in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.